Good morning. Um, so what I'd like to try and do in the next 45 minutes or so is I'll start off with some jargon just to make sure that we're all on the same page. And then I'll share with you what I think are some of the problems associated with trying to discover new medicines. Then I'll say a few words about what I think some of the causes are. I'll then share with you what I think is the solution and what we in Oxford are doing. And then I'll sum up. And then right at the end, I'd like to show a very brief 90-second, two-minute video. But I'd like to leave a good sort of 25, 30 minutes for questions. But please keep this interactive. If you have any questions, just raise your hand and ask them at any point. So let's start with some jargon. So many of you are probably aware that in each of us, there are probably close to 22,000 different proteins. And these proteins have different shapes and they have different sizes. Now, the way most drugs work is that they bind to these proteins and they affect them. They either stop them working or they make them more active or they uh, modulate their activity. You might think of a protein as a bit like a lock in a door. And you may think of the drug as being the key. So the key fits into the lock and it either opens the door or it shuts the door. It either increases heart rate or it decreases heart rate. It increases blood pressure or it decreases blood pressure. Increases breathing rate, decreases breathing rate. So proteins are like locks and drugs are like keys. The second point I'd like to make is that in terms of the process of drug discovery, what we do is we tend to work on one of these novel proteins. So all the drugs that are out there, there's probably close to 4,000 drugs. They only work on about 300 of these proteins. So there's probably well in excess of 19, 20,000 proteins that we've not even touched. And of course, many of those proteins could be targets for new medicines. So what we do in drug discovery is we take one of these new proteins and we try and identify a key for it, a molecule that binds it and affects its activity. And then we have to make sure that that key, that molecule, isn't broken down rapidly in the stomach or in the liver. Because, of course, if it, if it does that, then it's not going to have any effect. So it needs to hang around in the circulation for a reasonable length of time to have an effect. Then we usually take that molecule or key and we look at it in some sort of animal model of disease. So some people think that they've got animal models that mimic what happens in Alzheimer's or depression or whatever, and they test them in those animal models. And then we take that molecule or key, and in animals, we establish the highest dose that we can go to, you know, before we run into side effects. 
Then we take that molecule into what we call phase one studies. So these are studies in healthy volunteers, usually young male healthy volunteers. And we give that molecule at higher and higher doses. Again, we determine what's the highest dose you can go to in healthy volunteers. Then we go into phase two studies, and this is the first time we study patients. So we take that molecule into patients, and we look to see if that molecule has the desired effect. And then we go into phase three studies, which are again in patients, but they're usually in several hundred, several thousand patients, and there we define what's the most optimal dose, what's the best dose to give us the maximum efficacy with the least amount of side effects. And then, of course, the molecule gets marketed. Now, that process of drug discovery takes in the region of 12 to 15 years. So those were the two bits of jargony bits I wanted to get out of the way. So think of proteins as locks. Think of drugs as being the keys. And then this drug discovery process takes 12 to 15 years. And the first time we actually take a new molecule into patients is phase two. So that's the jargon bit out of the way. So now let's think of the problem. How long is the phase two? Great question. So up to phase two could be six, seven, eight years. So the problem. Let's break this down into two bits. What society wants and what's happening in the pharmaceutical industry. So let's think about what society wants, first of all. Globally, we have an ageing society. In the UK, in 2050, 27% of people will be over the age of 65. And in Japan, that figure is close to 33%. So it's hard to imagine for many of us actually walking down the street in the UK, one in four people will be over the age of 65 and in Japan closer to one in three. And of course, over the age of 65, if you look at the incidence of, say, dementia, it goes up exponentially. Look at the incidence of cardiovascular disease, goes up exponentially. Look at the incidence of cancer, goes up exponentially. We desperately need new treatments. In some parts of the world, we've almost got epidemics in certain diseases. Obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. What I would call diseases of modern living. We need newer treatments for those. So society is desperate for new treatments. Infectious diseases. Sally Davis, the chief medical officer of the UK, is desperately worried that soon we will not have enough antibiotics to allow us to do even minor operations in hospitals because people are developing resistance to those antibiotics. So the antibiotics are not working in those patients. So we desperately need new drugs. So now let's look at the situation in the pharmaceutical industry. 
The pharmaceutical industry over the past several decades has spent several tens of billions of dollars on biomedical research. And frankly, they are not delivering enough new medicines. The consequence of that has been profound. In the UK, I can give examples, the pharmaceutical industry has downsized massively. In the late 80s, early 90s, all the big players had big research centres in the UK. Now, in the past decade, Pfizer have shut down their research centre in Sandwich in Kent. Used to employ, I think, nearly six, seven thousand people. Six, seven thousand highly qualified, highly skilled individuals. Those jobs have gone. GSK had a research site in Harlow, shut. Merck had a research site in Harlow, shut. AstraZeneca had a research site in Loughborough, shut. They're about to shut their research site in Macclesfield. And Novartis have recently announced they're shutting their research site in Horsham. The industry is downsizing. These are private companies. The other challenge is that the way we're doing R&D at the moment, research and development, it's becoming unaffordable. So at the beginning of 2012, Forbes published an analysis. So they looked at a number of these very large pharmaceutical companies and they looked at how much money they spent on R&D over a finite period. They divided it by the number of drugs that they actually launched in that period and they came up with an average cost for a drug. AstraZeneca, the average cost was close to $12 billion. $12 billion to launch one drug. And they all varied. Amgen seemed to be the most efficient. Their average cost was $3.5 billion. But even $3.5 billion is not sustainable. You know, let's just put that into perspective. The University of Oxford has the largest research income in the UK of all the universities. But that is, I think, about in the order of a billion dollars a year, or less than a billion dollars a year. So $12 billion to launch one drug would keep all the university's research scientists going for 12 years. This is how much money we're talking about. It's staggering. And bear in mind that those new drugs that those companies launched, they were not completely novel drugs for novel proteins. A lot of them were just a variant of some of the drugs that are already out there. Yes. You know, another non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drug or another beta agonist for asthma. And of course, what we need is we need completely novel drugs. So the costs of R&D are becoming unaffordable. From a society's perspective, the costs of new medicines, I think, is also becoming unaffordable. A couple of years ago, Vertex, a company in the US, launched a drug for the treatment of cystic fibrosis. This drug works beautifully 
in 4% of patients with cystic fibrosis. So one patient in 25, it works beautifully. The cost of that drug is $300,000 a year. Who on earth can afford to pay nearly eight, dollars $900 a day for a new medicine? If we charge that in the UK for a new drug for Alzheimer's, it would bankrupt the NHS very quickly. This is what we're facing. The problem is drug discovery is also immensely risky. I talked about Alzheimer's. In the past decade, this industry has done 13 very large clinical studies in Alzheimer's. They did 13 phase 3 clinical studies, not phase 2, phase 3. These are the ones with several hundred, several thousand patients. Each of those studies cost several hundred million dollars. One of the studies that was done by Lilly cost 750 million dollars. All 13 studies were negative. Ladies and gentlemen, we are not even close to having a new treatment for Alzheimer's. And this is one disease, frankly, if we don't come up with a treatment in the next two decades, this one disease is going to financially cripple many societies. Cancer. Let me share with you some statistics. And these are statistics from the Cancer Research UK. CIUK, the world's biggest cancer charity. In the UK, every two minutes, somebody gets diagnosed with cancer. I hate to say it, but one in three of us in this room is going to get cancer. Last year, in Europe, 1.3 million people died of cancer. Just to put that into perspective, you know, that's more than the population of Birmingham. Died of cancer. This drug discovery, it's expensive, it's risky, it's very costly, it also takes too long. 12 to 15 years is too long. This is why the industry is in a crisis. So what are the causes of all this? I would put the causes into maybe two, two categories. One is organisational, and the second is scientific. So let me deal with the organisational ones first of all. The problem at the moment is that in biomedical research, in industry and in academia, there is too much duplication. You know, all these companies that are working on Alzheimer's or pain or depression or some type of cancer, I guarantee all of them are working on just a few targets, just three or four targets. They're all working on the same target, the same protein, the same lock. The reason they're all working on the same protein is because everybody reads the same literature, everybody goes to the same scientific conferences, and everybody talks to the same opinion leaders. 
and they all work on the same target. And then they spend six, seven, eight years coming up with their own little key for that lock. They do it in parallel, they do it in secret. And when they take that key of theirs, their novel molecule, into patients for the first time, so phase two studies, the failure rate is more than 90%. I can't imagine any other industry tolerating this. Can you imagine for any one company to work on a idea, a project for six, seven, eight years, come up with a molecule, and then they take it into patients for the first time, and more than nine times out of ten they fail? This is a tragic waste of money for that company. It's a waste of people's careers. But when you think there might be 20 companies doing exactly the same thing, in parallel, in secret, now just add up how much money we've wasted and how many careers we've wasted. But importantly, how many patients we've wasted. Because today, the way we're doing drug discovery, we are exposing patients to molecules that other groups already know are destined for failure. Because if Pfizer does a clinical study on a particular protein or a lock and their clinical study comes in negative, you can guarantee Novartis and GSK will be doing exactly the same. They're not going to tell Novartis and GSK. This is the danger of competition. This is the downside of competition. This is unethical. It is immoral. We can't let this continue. This is what's happening. I think the other challenge we've got uh, in industry is that inevitably these are private companies. The CEO, his or her job is to look after the share price this week, next week, next month, etc. This process takes 12 to 15 years to come up with a new drug. In that time frame, you could have four or five different CEOs. A short-term focus, which many of these companies have on the share price, this is not compatible with what we need to try and generate new medicines for patients. I also worry that in the industry there is not enough stability. There's too much, and we've seen it, too much buying each other, shutting sites, etc., You know, when something is difficult, and this clearly is difficult, you need that commitment, you need that stability, you need to recruit the best people, support them and let them get on with it. And that, I don't think, happens enough in industry. But it can happen in academia. So those are what I would say some of the organisational challenges. Duplication, not enough stability, too much of a short-term focus. Now let's think of the scientific challenges, scientific causes. I do not think we understand human disease well enough. We do not understand what causes depression. We do not understand what causes schizophrenia. When I say cause, I mean which cells in the brain are dysfunctional, leading to those symptoms. 
The brain, of course, operates as a circuit. It's very difficult to, to isolate human neurons. How do you get them from patients to study them? We do not understand human disease well enough. If I took 20 patients with neuropathic pain, so this is pain following some sort of nerve injury, and I put here 20 different neurologists who are expert in treating pain, and I asked them, could they predict which patient would respond to a particular drug? I guarantee they couldn't predict it. So the gold standard treatment for neuropathic pain is a drug called gabapentin, also called Lyrica. Now that drug, it works in a third of the patients after a couple of weeks at a reasonably low dose. In another third of the patients, you don't get any effect until five, six weeks, and then you have to go to much higher doses. And then the remaining third of the patients can't tolerate the drug. Patients are incredibly heterogeneous. They are incredibly different. All seven billion of us on this planet are different. Even identical twins are different. There are stories where identical twins, let's say born here in Oxford, and if one of them stays here in Oxford and the other one goes and lives in Texas... You know, their diet is different, their environment is different, their exercise patterns are different, etc. Their responses to drugs are different. Their, dis- their likelihood of getting certain diseases will become different. Environment has a big effect on disease progression and initiation. All of us are very different. The other problem we've got scientifically is that these animal models we use I do not believe we will ever have an animal model of schizophrenia. We will never have an animal model of depression. I think these animal models, they predict some of the pathologies, some of the causes of depression, but they do not reflect the whole spectrum. I have seen so many things work in animal models, and then when you take them into the clinic, they do nothing. The industry has done it many times for many diseases. They've had molecules work beautifully in certain animal models. They take them into the clinic and they do nothing. The other problem we've got is, scientifically, we don't have good biomarkers for many of these diseases. So imagine I'm doing a clinical study in Alzheimer's. I can't ask an Alzheimer's patient if their memory is better today than it was last week. I can't ask a depressed patient if they're feeling less depressed today than they were last month. How do you measure the effect of these new molecules? You know, there are some drugs we don't even know how they work. Existing drugs. Paracetamol, which all of us have taken, probably 100 million patients around the world will take paracetamol today. We do not know how paracetamol works. So if you don't know how existing drugs work, how can you design better ones? These are some of the scientific challenges. So I've shared with you some jargon. I've shared with you some problems. 
I've shared with you what I think are some of the causes, and the causes I've split into two categories, organisational and scientific. So now let's think of a solution. What are we doing in Oxford? So in Oxford, what we do is we work on completely novel proteins. Proteins that nobody else is working on. Some of these 22,000 that haven't been touched. The reason we do that is because we think that's where the truly novel medicines are going to come. It's a, no, it's, a, it's a great question. It's a great question. A lot of these proteins we can break down into what we call protein families, you know, so there are similarities. So, so we think of proteins like iron channels or kinases or epigenetic enzymes, etc. And many of these protein families are considered to be not druggable. Uh, they, for example, so industry believes or the medicinal chemistry community believe that for these particular locks, we will never be able to design a key. And we deliberately work on those. We de- you know, because we want to drive innovation. And I think that's our job in academia. We need to explore the unexplored. So we deliberately do that. But I'll come back to that later on, if I may, because uh, I'll illustrate to you that we are working with many companies. So what we do is we work on these completely novel proteins or locks. We generate that protein. We, we work out the shape of that lock. And then we generate some approximate keys. Keys that are going to open or close that lock. Then all of these things that we generate, we make them freely available. We give them to anybody in academia anybody in biotech, and anybody in pharma. No secrecy whatsoever. The reason we do that is because we think that's the best thing we can do to accelerate science and therefore accelerate drug discovery. Now, the consequence of that has been staggering. You can imagine that every academic who comes into my office wants to work with us. Because academics are desperate to get hold of these new keys or you know, they want to see what this new protein potentially does in their disease or their disease model. So they're desperate to get hold of these keys. And they know that I've got no secrets. I'll share all of our know-how, all of our expertise and all of our reagents. And that transparency, of course, is brilliant for collaboration, it's brilliant for creating trust in each other, it's brilliant for science, and therefore it's brilliant for drug discovery. So we are now working with more than 250 academic labs all over the world. We don't pay the other academics anything, they're grateful for our keys, they test them in their assays, They generate very high-impact publications because these are novel keys. What's also happened is that now we're working with 10 large pharmaceutical companies. So the companies are GSK, 
Pfizer Novartis Lilly, AbbVie, Takeda, Boehringer Ingelheim, Janssen, Bayer and Merck. They're not small companies. And each of these companies has given us $8 million of funding over four years. $8 million of each. So we have $80 million of private funds. But not only do we get access to their funds, we also get access to their expertise, access to some of their compounds, you know, their proprietary libraries of molecules, keys or potential keys that they've generated in the past. We get access to some of those. This is a great way of pooling resources, pooling expertise, sharing resources to try and catalyze science. We're trying to crowdsource science. We're trying to crowdsource early discovery. What's now started to happen is we've got small biotechnology companies coming to us and saying, look, we've got this novel platform, this novel technology. We would love to take your keys and we want to put them into this platform. And the reason they're doing that is because they want to be on our publications. So we're producing probably about one paper every six or seven days. Since the beginning of this year, we've had eight papers in Nature, Cell and Science. That's probably more than any department, any other department in Oxford. They want to be on our publications. But they also see us as a conduit into these ten farmers. If they start working with us, potentially they'll start working with one or more of these large pharma companies. This is fantastic. What we've now started to do is now we're going to generate these keys and now we're going to start collecting patient material. We're going to get cells from healthy individuals but also patients and then we're going to look to see what our keys do on those patient cells, on that patient tissue. Because I think that is a much better way of identifying potentially new locks which are likely to work in specific diseases. We're trying to get some handle on whether this idea, this key for this particular lock is going to work in schizophrenia or depression before we take it into a big clinical study. And of course, the advantage of sitting in academia is we have access to so many clinicians, we have access to patients and patient material and also patient databases. Sitting inside industry, that is very difficult to access. We're also now building strong relations with patient organisations. Many patient organisations are desperate for new medicines. Last Tuesday, I had this mother of a patient come to see me, together with her daughter's clinician. So this mother lives in Bath, the clinician lives in Cambridge. This daughter, this young lady, who's now 22 years old, has a rare cancer called GIST, gastrointestinal stromal tumour. It's a very rare cancer. 
the, the sort of cancer she's got is about one in a million patients. So probably in the UK, there's 60, 65 patients. Which private company is going to try and develop a drug for that cancer? What, did I, what, what could I say to this mother? She told me that her daughter has just had her stomach removed. Can you imagine, 22 years old, and she's had her stomach removed? These patients are desperate for new medicines. So we're setting up these links with patient organizations. And the advantage of that is that we can get faster access to some of this patient material so that we can study it. But of course, these patient organizations also know who are the world's experts in that disease. They're not all in Oxford. They're all over the world. And so what we will do, as soon as we've generated one of those keys, we will give it to one of these patient organizations and they can give it to the 20 experts all over the world, wherever they are. We're trying to catalyze drug discovery. What we're now also starting to do is the following. Because I said it's only in patients that you really find out if your idea is going to work. I mean, at the moment, nine times out of ten, we're failing when we do the first study in patients. Well, then it makes sense. Get to that point as quickly as possible. Identify that nine in ten that's garbage and identify that one in ten that has the potential to be a drug. So what we're now doing is we're going to take some of our novel keys all the way into patients completely in the open. No intellectual property, no patents. We will share all of our data, share all of our science. As soon as we've identified whether it's one of those 9 in 10 or one of, one of those 1 in 10, we will publish and tell the world this will help industry and it will help patients. This is going to completely transform the way we do drug discovery. Now, working with the Regis here, I mean, we're fortunate in this university to have a brilliant Regis. His name's John Bell. John is a real visionary. So, working with the Regis, we've been interacting with a number of entrepreneurs and venture capitalists. So, of course, you appreciate that, you know, when you're generating these novel proteins, novel locks, novel keys potential drugs and you've got this large global academic community that's generating lots of new biology so all these new reagents and new biology is the starting point for new biotech companies so in Oxford we've just got a large amount of money 11 million pounds from the government to build a bioescalator to basically try and take some of these reagents and create biotechs, get some of the university's entrepreneurs taking them up and driving them into the clinic as quickly as we possibly can. And finally, what we're doing in Oxford is we're building... We've got some fantastic links between the university and the hospitals already, but we're trying to set up a triangle of links. So the university, with all the hospitals that we've got, and all of our industrial links. 
because I think it's together that we're going to generate new medicines for patients. So that's starting to happen. So that's what we're doing in Oxford. So in summary, what I'd like to say is I do believe that secrecy and competition in the early phase of drug discovery is slowing down the discovery of new medicines. It is wasting resources, it is wasting people's careers, and importantly, it is wasting patients. We have to pool our resources, we have to pool our expertise, we have to work together. These are difficult challenges. There is no other way. There is no other way. And I will also say, and I was saying this to Christine earlier on, what we're doing here in Oxford, I do not believe is happening at any other university in the UK. I could not do this anywhere else in the UK. And I put this down very much to the leadership of this university. We are so lucky to have people like the Vice-Chancellor, or who I hope many of you have met, Andy Hamilton. I've already mentioned John Bell, the Regis. Peter Ratcliffe, who's head of clinical medicine. Alistair Buchan, who heads up medical sciences. But I could go on with Kay Davis, Mark Feldman, etc., etc. All of these people realise that in society there are some major challenges. And to address those major challenges, we have to come together. We have to work in a concerted way. We have to bring together people with different skill sets. We have to work not just with people in Oxford, but people at other universities. We have to work with people in uh, other industries. We have to work with patient organisations. We have to work with regulators. We have to work with payers. We are creating a new ecosystem for drug discovery. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. Let me share with you just a two-minute video, and Christine, who's our technical genius, is going to do it for us. <laughs> and God works here as well. Hello, Spawn. My grandpa was in his mid-70s. Now, he's in his late 80s. When I was one, my grandpa used to decorate his own house. Now, he relies on my uncle and my dad. When I was two, my grandpa used to go for a pint with my dad. Now, my grandpa drinks tea. When I was three, my grandpa used to grow vegetables on his allotment. Now, my grand buys them from Tesco. When I was four, my grandpa used to go out for a long walk every day. Now, he rarely goes out. When I was five, my grandpa used to drive his car. Now, if he goes out, he goes on a bus. When I was six, my grandpa used to wrestle with my brothers and I. Now, he doesn't really know we are there. When I was seven, my grandpa used to go to church every Sunday. Now, he hasn't been to church for years. When I was eight, my 
had some close friends that he would have a laugh and joke with. Now all of his friends are dead. When I was nine, my grandpa used to talk about his childhood in Ireland. Now he just sits quietly. When I was ten, my grandpa was smartly dressed and neat. Now he is untidy and looks like an old man. Last year, when I was eleven, my grandpa lost his power of speech. Now he rambles as if he is drunk. This year, when I am twelve, he is eighty-seven. He sits in his chair all day, waiting for my grand to bring him cups of tea. He gets crabby with people very easily. When I am eighty-seven, my grandpa will be long gone. My twelve-year-old granddaughter will be writing about me in her school book. Ladies and gentlemen, that was on Alzheimer's, obviously. But let me just finish with this anecdote. So I've talked about proteins and locks. So in Alzheimer's, the protein that everybody's been worrying about is a protein called amyloid. We started working on this protein 31 years ago. So the idea was that this protein accumulated in the brain and as a consequence, brain cells die and people lose their memory and they develop dementia. So what everybody has been trying to do for the past 31 years is to find ways to stop that protein accumulating in the brain or to increase its breakdown so it's cleared or just removing it from the brain. If you add up how much money we have spent altogether in academia, in biotech, in the pharmaceutical industry, on that one protein in 31 years, the estimate is more than $30 billion. After 31 years and $30 billion, we still don't know the answer. People are now asking the question, which form of that protein, because the protein exists in a number of forms. They're asking the question, where in the brain do you need to lower it? They're asking the question, when do you need to lower it? When do you need to start treating the patients? And if you do lower it, is it going to have any effect? 31 years, $30 billion, and this is a disease that if we don't find a treatment in the next two decades, I will say again, it will financially cripple many societies. Thank you very much. <laughs>